0: And first of all, thousands of ch- kids, as we know, are getting ready to go back. Uh, and while many of them are worried about perfecting their back-to-school look and what binders and pencils to buy, some are actually worried about something, you know, actually much more basic. Many children in this province rely on school to get enough food. And one charity that helps feeds kids uh, feed kids is worried about their ability to do a good job this year. Backpack Buddies is worried that... The upcoming school year uh, is going to be more challenging than ever and uh, Vice President and Co-Founder of Backpack, Backpack Buddies, Emily Ann King joins me now. Hey, Emily. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks for joining me. I know it's probably a busy day for you in preparations for the school year ahead. and but Just tell me a bit about Backpack Buddies. What do you guys do?
1: Yes, yeah, so Backpack Buddies seeks to address the often hidden crisis of childhood hunger in our province. And we do so by targeting the weekend hunger gap. So what we mean by that is you know, that Saturday-Sunday period where children who rely on school meal programs Monday through Friday don't have access to those. So that's really what, what we try to, to help with.
0: And literally the name, because you, how does the name work? How does that, how does it actually work? So I've got kids in the school system. I know that there are a lot of kids who don't have the kind of food that, that my kids were able to get and maybe didn't always eat. Uh, tell me how the actual system works.
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we support just over 4,000 kids every week across the province. And what we do is deliver bags of food to over 180 sites okay. on Friday afternoon. So the bags are dropped off. They have nine meals in them, three breakfasts, three lunch, three dinners, fresh fruit and snacks. Wow. And they're, they're targeted to, for that child, individually for each child to take home for the weekend to last them all weekend with a few extra meals to last them beyond.
0: So the schools. Some schools have warm lunch programs, but this goes way beyond that. This is not just a warm lunch on a Friday afternoon that some schools have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those, those hot lunch programs at schools are critical to food security for so many kids. And when that Friday afternoon bell rolls around, that's often a very scary time for kids. You know, we have over 170,000 children in our province that live in food insecurity. It's, it's a staggering it's, number.
0: And so you're only making a small dent in that. But, you know, how does how do you even identify the kids that are most in need and how do they get in touch with you?
1: So we work with the different schools um, in each of our districts. So we're, as I mentioned, over 180 locations. Mm -hmm. Some of those are with community partners, but largely we deliver directly to schools. And it's up to schools uh, and the administrators and teachers within them to determine the children. You know, they work with them on a day-to-day basis and know their background. So we're simply given the numbers of children at each location and, and we deliver what they request.
0: This year is, all, as I mentioned at the, the beginning, is super challenging on so many levels. This year, as it was last year, for, you know, with COVID. Um, what are some of the challenges you're facing? Really, some big challenges. I know that, uh, that we've heard on the show, and I've interviewed people about food prices. This kind of stuff's having a huge impact on you.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. You know, we've had some of our major suppliers tell us to basically brace and prepare for increases on a lot of our items, anywhere from 4% to 38% increases Whoa. on some of our goods. And so it's, it's really alarming to us as an organization, but even more so, what worries us is the families that may be living on the brink of food insecurity. These prices on store shelves can, can tip a lot of people over the edge, and we're expecting to see even more vulnerable families as a result.
0: How do you, if you see a thirty-eight percent increase in pricing, does that mean a potential thirty-eight percent decrease in what you can give out? And how does that uh, math work?
1: Yeah, it doesn't quite equate in that exact kind of way. But what we do know is that we need to obviously continue to fundraise as much as possible, and it may mean that we can we can't expand our program as quickly as we would like. So you know that might mean that we have to add more children and families and schools to our wait list. Uh, until we have enough secured funding because it's really important to us that once we add a, a school and a student to our program that we're there every single Friday for that family. And, and so it's about sustainability uh, mm-hmm. and that assurance for kids as well that, that they're going to be
0: taken care of. And your current funding, how does it work?
1: If yeah, we so were a traditional charity, so we write a lot of grants and mm-hmm. you know, largely get funding from our generous donors in the community, so individuals who help us and um, we were lucky to receive some government funding throughout the COVID pandemic, some of the emergency funding um, we, we could tap into, but that's largely drying up now. So, yeah, it's, it's all a little bit uncertain, I'd say.
0: The logistics of this must be complex. How do you, you know, the cost is one thing, logistics is another, staffing is another. How do all these things work together?
1: Yeah, we've got an incredible team of staff and an operations and logistics manager who is really the person who's responsible for getting all of these bags to all the different locations. And, you know, in Metro Vancouver, we have a fleet of six, uh, seven, actually seven vehicles that distribute all around the lower mainland. And then in more remote locations, like up in, you know, Stewart, which is in the far north Mm -hmm. of the province, we piggyback on um, transportation companies who already go there, We, we get to put the product on the back of their trucks. And they generously donate that to us. So it's a, a massive sort of web and puzzle and it, it's not a one-size-fits-all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like it. How did you, you're a co-founder, so how did you get involved in this? How did you this start for you?
1: Yeah, so I started um, Backpack Buddies with my mom in 2012 when um, the issue of this sort of weekend hunger gap was brought to our attention and mm-hmm. we decided we wanted to try to help and it was just in one school and uh, on the downtown east side and um, once we started doing the work and the more need we saw, we just you know, we couldn't stop and decided to basically dedicate our lives to, to doing this and helping kids.
0: It's amazing. How, how can people help now, then, if you've got this challenge? What can, we, what can people do What can to ensure that you get what you need to get the job done?
1: Yeah, so the number one thing is, anyone that's interested, is um, to just check out our website, backpackbuddies.ca. Lots of information about that, how to donate and, and how to get involved. If you work for a company that might want to fundraise for us. Tons of information, and uh, if you just shoot us an email or check out the website, it's all there.
0: All right, Emily, I really appreciate you. Emily, and I, I really appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Welcome back, George Affleck, in for Mike Smith today on this holiday Monday, this Labor Day. And I hope you're doing well and you're getting things done today and you're up and at them. Uh, and before we all head back to school, as we knew, you know, a lot of the kids are heading. Back to school tomorrow, along with, of course, the teachers. Uh, many concerns have been raised about BC's back-to-school plan. Some of the common criticisms are over a lack of a mask mandate for kindergarten to grade three, no online schooling for those who'd rather learn remotely, and some would like to see mandatory vaccinations for teachers. Our next guest is a teacher and she's concerned about BC's back-to-school plan and I don't think she's alone. Annie Ohana is a Surrey School District uh, 39 department head and a teacher advocate. Hi, Annie. Hello, how are you? Good, so... You know, every school year is, at the beginning of the school year, is a challenge. As, as a parent, I know that, and as teachers know this, and kids know this. Um, and last year was really, really super weird. Uh, yeah. This year is a bit more normal, or is it still super abnormal? What, what's going on for you, <laughs> from your point of view?
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, last year, really, it felt like you were in, in a dryer, right, or a washing machine, right? Just, yeah. it, just it was it truly, and I mean, we didn't know if we were going to get extra time to prepare, right, all those things. Yeah. So I mean, it's nice to, to say that at the very least, you know, we're seeing people getting vaccinated. Um, you know, we're know we're, we know we're heading back to 100% return. So so those are things that I think are, are a bit more calm. Uh, but that being said, over the last several weeks, uh, the lack of truly a plan that 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 really speaks to all of our concerns, especially as we have the Delta variant and mm-hmm. we're in the middle of the fourth wave, um, that does that leaves us still at a very tense reality and the fact that you know we it's almost like a wait and see approach which we're not happy about Um, because when you look at other jurisdictions around the world uh, you're seeing kids getting sick you're seeing Mm -hmm. entire classes Uh, actually well I can even give an example right on August 30th from right here in Vancouver where a school staff meeting at a gym uh, and then they got an exposure notice right right after that. So we're almost like we're heading into an issue. We see the storm coming, and a lot of teachers feel that we haven't done enough to prepare for it.
0: But what did you expect from from the decision makers? You've got 75% plus double vaccinated. The people who are getting super sick are usually the unvaccinated. What what were you expecting would be happening from the leadership in BC for schools at this point? (laughs)
2: Uh, you know, after 18 months and, and, and i teaching in an area that, that had uh, many exposure notices, we had a 20-plus percent positivity rate at one point, mm-hmm. uh, we, we really expected that the lesson would be learned that we need flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. So especially for areas such as Surrey, that, that we would have an opportunity that if we needed to go remote, right, that that could happen. Um, if we needed to make some changes here or there, that could happen. We thought that we would see a to K-3 mandate uh, for math because of the fact that we see the Delta variant having a big impact right, on mm-hmm. those that are unvaccinated. So you know, there were some things, you know, ventilation w- would happen sooner, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are still areas where, where we have questions around whether the investment the government says is happening has actually happened yet, right? These things take time, hmm. obviously. Yeah,
0: of course. Some so, of that's complex.
2: So yeah, so just like the lessons learned, and, and unfortunately, you know, right at the end of August was when the plan was released, and it didn't leave a lot of right. time to, to, to prepare and, and, you know, reassess and adapt, as, as Dr. Henry said.
0: One of the most surprising ones to me as a parent is, is the fact that there's no online uh, option. Yeah. That, that's Why wouldn't they just continue with that since it was already built up and created and working yeah. for some people, maybe, maybe not some for mm-hmm. others, quite well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, especially in speaking to parents and having advocated with parents that uh, have students that are vulnerable or vulnerable themselves, mm. special needs, uh, they were hit very hard last year. And and so there's really a question about accessibility to education when you have parents that truly fear for their children, uh, because in their cases, maybe uh, they can't get vaccinated, they can't wear a mask. And so their vulnerabilities are much higher. Um, yes, and I am surprised. We know we're in a deficit. Uh, we know that money has not come from the federal government and a lot of us wonder why because at the end of the day aren't our kids worthy enough right so that you know a little bit of that investment goes a long way to make sure uh, our kids can actually get educated and that our parents uh, those that especially need the help, you know, you know, get the help through, you know, an online option.
0: It seems that the that uh, Dr. Barney Henry and the province are open to being nimble when it comes to regulations, like you know, they got hard on Kelowna, now they're getting hard on tough on the north when it comes to just general regulations. But they don't seem to be so willing to be nimble when it comes to the school system, even if it was targeted to those same areas that are they're targeting for other stuff. Why wouldn't they? Why can't they be more nimble, uh, especially when you look at specific areas that might be. Less less uh, vaccinated, for example, or, you know, what are they saying to you when you talk to them?
2: Yeah, and that's exactly one of those lessons we thought would be learned, Mm -hmm. because we felt throughout the last 18 months that anything that applied to the general public or in other industries was not applying to us. Mm. Uh, At what point they had put, um, you know, the idea that if you had, like, three positive cases that you would go remote, right, in in certain industries. That did not apply to schools, um, so I guess their reasoning is always uh, the line of "quote transmission is low," right? When it comes to school, uh, where we found that problematic was that unfortunately, you know, we're, we're not an island. We don't we don't just exist in the school, and nobody goes home, and nobody, you know, like that. There's no such thing. So our community, our families, our students, you know, they're going home. They're living in multi generational homes. There, there's a mix of vaccinated, unvaccinated, right? Um, and so the reality is, it is coming to our schools. Uh, we cannot simply say that our schools are some sort of, you know, fantasy land where, where there's, there's no possibility of transmission. Uh, so why not be safe? Why not have the same standards that we're seeing? And you're right. So if we can be flexible enough to say, well, Kelowna and the north and this, let's keep that going and apply that to schools. Because really the reality is we're not shutting down anything. We go remote, right? We, 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 you know, get back to that safety, get back to that space mm-hmm. of, okay, we know people are vaccinated, whatever it might be. And then we return. Uh, we're not asking for a complete shutdown. We want to make sure we return to the, the safest environment possible.
0: This is, this is having an impact, like many industries, with this sort of the great resignation. Uh, are mm-hmm. you seeing that same thing with teachers who are going, you know what, I'm done, I can't. The, not only was teaching tough before, adding all this and it's just too tough, I'm out of here. Are you seeing a lot of that now?
2: absolutely you know we, we saw a, a mental health decline right i mean it was mm-hmm. like 80 percent plus of folks and and newer teachers were saying is this the norm you know you know i even took to admit that we're newer you know is this the norm right is this is this how, yeah. what teaching is um you know a lot of us felt unheard and even like this summer you know there was a, a sense of wow, all the stuff we've done, right? Like, why aren't people paying attention to that, right? Why isn't the government right. seeing, you know, what we've done? Um, you know, we are a resilient bunch. I know many of us are returning, uh, you know, ready to go and, 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 you know, ready to make sure that we do as much as we can in our classrooms to make sure things are safe. Uh, we know our kids are going to do everything they can to make sure we stay safe. Uh, it's really that final piece of... You know, when you know there's there's a fourth wave, you know, what else can be done to really make that happen? Yeah. And the hope is to get more teachers back.
0: George Affleck in for uh, Mike Smith on this holiday labor day. Holiday labor day. It's, it's, it's a contradiction in terms, really. But I uh, hope you're enjoying your day and you'll get out there for the last day before school. And, you know, we're continuing our discussion about back to school. And in the latter part of this half hour, we're going to take your calls on this as well. Uh, for many of you uh, out there, including myself, uh, you know, school's back tomorrow. And one of the criticisms of BC's back to school plan is that there's no online option for students to learn remotely if they choose. For families, for families, where someone's medically vulnerable despite being vaccinated, this can be you know, a real concern, especially when they more infectious Delta variant is in our, in our communities. Joining me now is Lindsay Locke. She's a concerned parent. Hey, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for joining me. So tell me about your situation. You have one of those kids.
3: I do. Uh, my daughter was born at 25 weeks. Uh, she has extensive lung damage and asthma along with a compromised immune system. Um, She's been learning uh, in the blended program in the Surrey School District Mm -hmm. since March of 2020 and now there is no option for online learning. Um, They say that there's like a, a distributed learning or a distant learning, distance learning, but I've been exchanging some emails back and forth with our superintendent, and I haven't had uh, a response as to what that looks like, especially for my daughter, because she also has um, an IEP, so she needs um, extra assistance when it comes to certain subjects, and they're just isn't any assistance with that.
0: Why, why, so. What is going on? I don't understand this. I mean, I have, I, most parents are like, I don't want to take, you know, take, send to go to school. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> obviously there's a lot of parents who are going, I'm not comfortable with this. And there's parents like you who've got kids who are vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. What is, what, I don't get it. Why are they not doing this? Why they had it all set up last year. It was all working just fine. Why not just do it for another year? What's their response to you when you ask that question?
3: Uh, there really isn't a response. Um, I haven't because it's, they're saying it's the government that's not offering it. <laughs> so so, cool. so it's kind of like a back and forth. Um, I know that in the spring we were given a questionnaire
2: mm-hmm.
3: asking us how we liked the blended learning and that they were going to be changing it because the way our school district did it is she went three days a week for two hours in the afternoon and they were going to change it to one full day in class and the other four days online. And so they were asking our input on that. And then all of a sudden it was everything's hunky-dory. We're going back to a hundred percent face-to-face COVID. Isn't like going to be a huge thing. It's going to be, you know, near normal for the school year. And then with the Delta variant coming in, in the summer, it kind of changed everything. And I honestly, I can't get an answer because uh, the school board school district is saying that the government's not, they're saying no, so who, they can't who, do it.
0: Well, who's supposed to advocate for you? I don't get it. I mean, you, the, if the province is saying no, shouldn't the school boards then be fighting for you as the representatives of the school system? Or who, who's yes. supposed to be doing the fighting for us here?
1: While they're, they're, well, we elect trustees
3: for our school boards, they're supposed to be fighting for mm-hmm. us. Um, I've also emailed our um, MLA's no response from them either. And then we also have BCC PAC. The BCC PAC right. is supposed to be the voice of the parents. Mm-hmm. And our PAC is a member of the BCC PAC. And we have not, we were not consulted as a PAC. And we were also not consulted as parents um, as to what we wanted to see going back into the school year. So I question as to, are they actually the voice of the parents when they're not consulting mm-hmm. the parents to are go you, to the steering committee?
0: Are you on the PAC?
3: I am. I'm the actual. I'm the pack chair okay. at I've our school.
0: Been there, done that uh, <laughs> for many years. What, what? So okay, you have to get this. You, you, you're kind of being thrown into this situation. You're not. You didn't sign up to become a politician, but it seems yep. like you're becoming one.
3: Yeah. Well, I I stand up for what I believe is right, and I've always been a, an advocate for my daughter um, from day one, mm-hmm. um, and I will continue to do so when I think that people are failing her. I just, I don't like the finger pointing. I don't feel that children, the, the narrative is, is that kids don't get really sick from Delta. They are usually fine. And the amount of kids that do get really sick or en, end up with um, MIS-C or any other complications are very few. Well, why aren't we doing what we can to protect those very few children? Because mm-hmm. we have the tools to be able to do it. Why are we not pulling out all the stops? And it just seems like more we're taking more of a reactive approach than a proactive approach because who knows what's going to happen next week and mm-hmm. in the weeks following mm-hmm. with the most of the children in her school because she's in elementary school um, not able to be vaccinated
0: so what are the trustees saying I mean these are the people who you elected in your community mm-hmm. um, when you go to each one of them and how many are there you know five or six or seven in your community i mean There's- how
3: five or six in our community. What,
0: what are they saying? I don't get it. I mean, what they're, they're supposed to be out there. Are they not, they're not responding either. The MLA is not responding. Who's your MLA?
3: Uh, my MLA is, um, uh, Berin, uh no, uh, what I'm trying to remember what his name is. A Barar. That's to my MLA is. And, uh, yeah, I emailed him, and I just got one of those automatic responses back, and I actually emailed Ken Hardy, who I know is, uh, mm-hmm, is provincial, yeah. or sorry, federal, yeah. and uh, he emailed me back and was hmm. like, you know, this is not, there's not much I can do, but he actually CC'd my MLA on the email, <laughs> so there was a back and forth and still nothing from him, and our trustees, I emailed all of them. I got a reply from the chairperson and she said I'm forwarding this to who to who this needs to go to and I never heard a thing.
0: It's 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 astounding to me. I think that one of the challenges, as a you know, I'm there lots of people are experiencing this whole COVID nightmare differently, and I think it's important that anybody understands. Everybody understands that. I mean, I've been kind of casual about it more than others. You know, as far as my kids, um, but I know there are other parents that are more strict and, and, and worried, and I don't have the same challenges you have with health concerns you they have to the people who are elected and who represent you and the people who are running the system you need to understand that they're a different scale of concern. Why don't they understand that? What is I don't understand why they don't understand that
3: I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. It's, it's, it, em, it enrages me because I been I've been very vocal and to get nothing back it's, it makes me feel like my kid doesn't matter.
0: So how are you planning for <clears throat> is she, your daughter she's back tomorrow?
3: She is, uh, school's back tomorrow. Um, our school just does an hour, but, uh, I've spoken to her principal who's been extremely accommodating and wonderful. Um, and she's not going to be going back to school until the classes are figured out because they don't know exactly who their teacher is at first. They have to see how many kids are coming and then do the class composition, submit them to the district, and then wait for the go ahead to create the
0: classes. And you don't have the option yourself to homeschool?
3: Um, no, I don't like. I no thanks. I I, just, <laughs> That's what I, would say. I don't. Well, after the last year of learning online, she needs extra help. She deserves to have a safe education, mm-hmm. just like everybody else does. And I, I want her to be in class with her peers, but I'm terrified that we're not doing everything to protect them, and that she's going to end up getting COVID. And uh, there's a huge risk with her getting it. And yeah,
0: it's this is not obviously, you know, the stress of going back to school, you know, the normal stress that we all have. But adding this on compounding, this is significant. And you're not the only parent. There are many across the province like you, right?
3: Yeah, there are. And uh, parents that have reached out to me from our school community. um, And then there's also parents who themselves have um, like life threatening illnesses that if their child brings COVID into the home and they get it, despite being, being vaccinated, it can have severe uh, consequences for their health, and then what happens from there, right? So it's not just the kids, but it's having anyone com- immune compromised in your home as well. So they don't have an option of keeping their kids home learning either. And if you do the homeschooling or you're able to find an online program, you have to withdraw your child from their community
0: school as well. All right, Lindsay. So remind me again, who's your MLA? <laughs> just, I, I want to track this guy down, and I want to see if we can get him on the show to talk to him. But uh, me, I'd, so, I'd, well, I'll, I'll, we'll find him, and I think we need to talk to him for sure. we are i am gonna ask my producer if we can either get him today or tomorrow when Mike's back. But I think we need answers, and I think it's important. But I appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, no problem. It's Jay Rob Rup- Welcome back. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today on this holiday Monday, this Labor Day, and I hope you're doing well. In this hour, we're going to be in the, after the uh, uh, the news at uh, 1030, we're going to be talking about coyotes. Yes, coyotes and uh, and the impacts they are having in Stanley Park. If you haven't heard, they're being culled by the province, uh, and some people have concerns about that, and we'll be hearing about that. Uh, later in this half hour, we'll be going to Jackie Teggart. She's the BC Liberal MLA, and she's going to tell us her thoughts on what we just talked about before the break which is the back-to-school plan from the province where there's a lot of parents and teachers who are concerned that the plan's not good enough. And so we're going to hear from the BC Liberals on that. Uh, in the second hour, uh, and third hour, at uh, between 11 and 12, we're going to have Wim van der will be here. So if you've got questions regarding your gardening, it's time to get your garden ready for the fall. Uh, Wim will be taking your calls here uh, between uh, 11 and 11:30, and in our last half hour, we're going to have uh, Mike Agarbo. will be here with uh, tech tips for your kids for back to school, some cool new devices, and we're going to hear about those from Mike. But as we uh, as we grow ever closer to election day, here we're seeing some shifting in the polls. According to the latest poll from Research Co., there's a big difference in which leader people would rather have uh, you know negotiate foreign policy and which leader they'd rather sit down for a beer with uh you know how are canadians feeling at this point in election i'm joined now by mario canseco president of research co hey mario hey george great to be here with you yeah thanks for for joining me again so two weeks to go uh, um did you think it would be this close at this point we're like neck and neck for the, the liberals and the conservatives uh when you were doing the polling a few months ago did you ever see this happening
4: no, I think the expectation for most people looking into the way Erin Two was connecting before the campaign was called was that we would be having something similar to what happened to Pierre-Eliot in 1974, uh, coasting to a majority, having an easy time recovering most of the seats that that, that were lost in the right. election that was held two years previously. Now it's looking more like 1979. We could be in a situation where the Liberals win the popular vote but don't have enough seats. And then the first person who gets the crack at forming the government, just like Joe Clark did in 1979, would be Erin O'Toole in 2021.
0: Oh, my God. That lasted, what, nine months, I think, for Clark in in 1979? It wasn't a long reign of uh, Clark in that, that time. So we might be up for another election before you know it at this rate.
4: Well, that's also part of the situation. You know, if if No. 2 cannot find enough support uh, from the NDP, if he decides to try to join the bloc, which is not doing very well at this stage, uh, or Mm. there's a grand coalition like the one they had in Germany just a few years Ah. ago, then we're heading back to the polls. Uh, So it's definitely not the scenario that the Liberals envisioned when they called this election. They thought we're coasting, people are happy with the COVID-19 management. Mm -hmm. Everybody who wanted to get vaccinated already has their shots. So we'll win. And it hasn't
0: been that easy. It's interesting. You know, your, the latest poll talks about things like having a coffee or beer with politicians. As a former politician myself, it's one of those questions that people often ask about, you know, who you generally, I find, you know, drinking with politicians is, has its ups and downs for sure. Depends how much they they have to drink, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> tell me about this latest poll and some of the stuff that you've pulled out of it.
4: You know, this is a question that I asked uh, back in 2011 uh, for the federal election. And I was curious to see how people reacted now to the leaders uh, that we have at this particular stage. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting is you see uh, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh doing very well on the likability stuff. You're more likely to say that you want to have a drink with Justin Trudeau at the local bar. You're more likely to say that you want Justin Trudeau to babysit your kids (laughs) or a relative's kids. You're more likely to look at Justin Trudeau as the person you want on your sports team. But on the policy side of things, this is where it gets interesting, because Erin O'Toole, who is supposed to be the rookie here, is leading on a few of these issues. Hmm. He is leading on being prime minister in the event of a terrorist attack. He's also leading on negotiating with U.S. President Joe Biden on trade and security issues. And he also leads on negotiating with Russia over Arctic sovereignty. So Hmm. it's amazing how the likability stuff, Trudeau does better than Erin O'Toole. Jagmeet Singh climbs the charts on a few of these things. But when it comes to foreign policy, it's Erin O'Toole, the former soldier who is doing remarkably well.
0: Because I guess sometimes I think we want somebody to be tougher on those issues that he's maybe a front runner on, and people who who are sometimes tougher are not that much fun at the bar. I don't know. Maybe that has something <laughs> to do with it. So that, that's what's interesting though is is um, yeah the foreign policy stuff because he has no experience really in anything related to foreign policy, and, and you know whereas Trudeau's been out there, he's the he's now the the, the granddaddy of the G7. Uh, he's been there. I think he's the longest leader now. Or pretty soon will yep. be. Uh, you'd think would. Give Give, give him that credit, but uh, we're giving it to a guy who has zero experience with foreign policy.
4: That's surprising. Well, what's fascinating to me, going back to the numbers we had in 2011, uh, Jack Layton wore all the likability stuff. The mm-hmm. person who you wanted to have a beer with, the person you wanted to have coffee with, the person who would babysit your kids, Michael Ignatieff did well on only one question, which was being part of your trivia team. Uh, mm. makes perfect sense because uh-huh. he's an academic. But uh-huh. Stephen Harper won handily on everything else. When it came to Arctic sovereignty, when it came to negotiating with the U.S., when it came to terrorism the incumbent usually leaks. And this is definitely problematic for Justin Trudeau because what it shows is that during the first couple of weeks of the campaign, the person who has emerged that's looking prime ministerial is the leader of the conservatives and not the leader of the liberals.
0: And then there's Jagmeet Singh. And then this is the interesting challenge because... Uh, what could happen and some of the other polls that are out there are saying that uh, the upset for the Liberals might be the vote towards the NDP. Jagmeet Singh is is really quite popular. You can look at his TikTok channel and his Instagram and he's all over social media. He's definitely got the youth vote going on there, but they're not straying too far from their standard uh, NDP policy platform stuff.
4: No, not at all. I think part of what happens is we already saw the likability for Jagmeet Singh climbing the charts back in 2019. He was heading into the federal debates sort of in the low 40s, and emerged out of the debates in the low 50s. So you had more than half of Canadians saying, I like what this person is doing. It doesn't necessarily bring you to vote for the NDP. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest challenges for them. Their numbers in Quebec are very low. Only 10% of people want to vote for the NDP. In Ontario, they're not close to the Liberals or the Conservatives at Mm. this stage. So... The room for growth is in British Columbia. And part of the problem is if that vote is coming out of the liberal numbers, especially in the ridings located in Metro Vancouver, that might actually enable the conservatives to do well. So if there's a place where that vote shift could end up hurting the NDP and the liberals, it's BC.
0: Yeah, I think Granville, uh, that riding alone, which has got the liberal candidate in a lot of trouble, and that's, you know, it's never going to be NDP, but it could easily, it has been conservative, so that one could swing. Quebec's interesting because Jack Layton, that's where he really grew at the base for NDP. But that you don't see that's not the polling is not showing that for Jagmeet Singh.
4: No, I think, you know, when, when we go back to the 2011 election, and that was the best election in the history of the NDP federally, uh, Layton really campaigned very hard in Quebec. He went to all the talk shows. His mm-hmm. French was significantly better than the French of some of the other leaders, including mm-hmm. Stephen Harper. Uh, he was originally from Montreal. So he was playing into those roots. And it ended up uh, helping him do very well there. A lot of that support stays with Tom Mulcair in 2015. But it de- definitely disintegrates in 2019. And this is the reason why we don't have a three-horse race like the one we had mm. back in 2015. With the NDP at 10% in Quebec, they're not going to get closer to
0: 30%. So uh, the tone for the next two weeks, and really is two weeks, and, and, and some might say it's a lifetime of politics. Others might say that's not a lot of time for the Liberals to turn things around. But, I mean, these, the, the polls that you do and others do, how, how much to play do they have and how – decisions are made? And what do you think, what do you see happening over the next couple of weeks for some of these leaders?
4: Well, I think one of the crucial aspects for the next couple of weeks is to try to establish an emotional connection. And I think it's been very hard for the Liberals because the first 10 days of the campaign are spent discussing Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. This allows somebody like O'Toole, who was a former soldier, to come out there and say, I would have done things differently. And there's no way to counter that. Mm -hmm. Now, Afghanistan seems to be not as high on the radar screen as it was just a couple of weeks ago. So now is the opportunity for the liberals to try to sell their vision of the country. Similar situation for Erin O'Toole. The challenges are tougher, actually, for the smaller parties. The Greens are not doing as well as they used to. Mm -hmm. Their numbers at the national level are the lowest that they've been for the past three elections. And the bloc isn't really garnering as much support as they did the last time. They got a bump because a lot of people didn't know who Yves-Francois Blanchet Mm -hmm. was. Uh, But now uh, the numbers are stagnant. So. It's definitely about establishing that emotional connection. The liberals wanted to do it with the pandemic, and so far they haven't been able to do so.
0: We've got two debates: one more in French, I think, and one in English. Uh, from a pollster point of view, uh, are, you, are you out in uh, in the market right after those uh, those uh, those and getting some data in?
4: Yeah, definitely. We want to be in field after those debates because part of what happens is it's the analysis afterward that really mm-hmm. seals the deal. You know, you might be nobody watching watches the debate, it, but, but yeah, it's that's coverage, right. Yeah. It's the coverage afterwards. It's, you know, did you hear this? Did you see this? And now it's different because it's not like the olden days with Mulroney and the clips being played on television. Everybody is going to grab a piece of that Mm -hmm. and put it on their social media. So that is where the actual analysis of the debate is going to take place.
0: So lots to to come, lots of, I mean, two weeks.
4: It's going to be interesting, Mario. It will be. And it's definitely a more interesting race than the one we envisioned covering just 20 days ago. (laughs) That's true. All right, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, George, anytime.
0: Welcome back. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today, this holiday Monday, this Labor Day. And if you like labor, well, maybe you like gardening. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big gardener myself, but it's that time of the year. It's fall's coming in. It's getting colder. It's getting crisper. Per- per- the pe- perpetual heat of summer is coming to an end. So it's time to start thinking about, you know, what you should you do with your garden to talk about things all related to gardening uh, and to take your questions. So get your finger at the dial here because we're opening up the phone lines. I'm joined by Wim V. Vanderzam, president of Art Nap and author of the best-selling gardening book Just Ask Wim. Uh, Just Ask Wim. And again, the lines are open 604-280-9898 for your questions with Wim. Wim. Hey Wim, how's it going? Hey, great George. Nice to be here. Thanks for taking uh, time on this holiday Monday, but I'm sure it's a busy day actually for you and your stores because this is when people start really thinking about their fall, is that right?
5: Yeah, it's a big transition time. You know, people start cleaning up their gardens, getting mm-hmm. rid of sort of tired flowers and uh, starting, you know, considering what to do with the lawn, looking at their trees. And uh, it's, a, it's a big transition, a month or a month and a half to two months, actually. October is also a great month for, for getting things cleaned up, ready for winter.
0: So there's no chance that their summer flowers are going to blossom again if it gets hotter. If they're done, they're done, right?
5: You know, it's funny. Uh, good question, because um, it, it depends on those summer flowers, the annuals. Some will keep blooming right till the frost. And others that are maybe uh, seed-based, uh, they were starting from seed rather than from cutting, mm-hmm. they tire out, they get spent, and they're kind of like at their end of their life cycle.
0: Okay. I noticed I was driving past a couple of school fields, and I noticed the grass has really come back with this rain. Um, is there anything with related to lawns that we need to think about at this point for the next year, or should we enjoy this lushness that's kind of coming back on our, on our lawns?
5: Well, the funny thing is this drought has, the, the drought of summer has kind of really... Uh, wreak havoc with lawns yes you'll notice actually your lawn coming back with those th- these past mm-hmm. rains for the majority of the lawn but there is some areas that i'm seeing in a lot of different lawns where it's still brown it hasn't come back which means after these few rains that we've had and your lawn is is not beginning to green up you might want to consider uh taking action An action where you have brown patches or even if you just want to start a lawn at this time of year from seed, it is actually the best month to sow a lawn because the ground mm. is warm. Heat is coming out of the ground. The, 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 seed, the, the lawn seeds germinate very, very quickly, yep. and your grass is growing within a couple of weeks. So um, if you have some brown patches that don't look like they're going to be coming back, then you might want to get a very stiff uh, rake uh, with the hard tines and really scratch those dead areas. And once they're scratched, rake up the debris, uh, then throw the seed down and then a little bit of uh, fresh topsoil on top of that, Hmm. just to give it something to root into. And then it's then it'll be, like I say, green within a couple of weeks.
0: Cool. One of the things that in the fall and the winter is houseplants, because we don't uh, we can't be outside. And and of course, in Vancouver and lots of the communities, we live in apartments. So houseplants are back. Is there anything different for fall and winter that that compares to summer for houseplants? You know,
5: uh, for sure, and a lot of people actually put their house plants outside for the summer because um, they grow really well outside. Mm. They get lots mm-hmm. of light. They do better with just the out, outdoor environment. Uh, so, if you have done that, bringing them back in, you might want to take advantage of a beautiful day like today and like hose them down. Get a get a soft cloth, rub the leaves, and not only to clean. The dust and debris that you may not even see on the leaves mm-hmm. uh, allows them to breathe better and purify the air inside your home when you do bring them in. But also, a lot of bugs like to to uh, situate eggs and stuff on on tropicals house plants because uh, they're a soft, usually a soft um, uh, type of leaf mass. So there's lots of availability if if a, if a an egg a, a, a bug is to sort of. Uh, accumulate on the plant, then it will actually uh, have a great source of food. So, so wash them down well before okay. you bring them inside. And lastly, when you do bring them inside, start cutting the water way back, like in half. If you're watering them once a week, right. uh, make it every second week.
0: Okay. I'm speaking with Wim Van Der Zand, president of ArtNap. I'm taking your calls and the, the, the lines are open. Lighten up. 604-280-9898. <laughs> 604-280-9898. Your questions. Lines are open for, for, for Wim. we got Lucille from Burnaby. Your question for Wim.
4: Hi, thanks, George and Wim. I have about four rose bushes, and they're about 12 feet high. Uh, They're waving in the wind, the branches, most of them. I'd like to know if I can prune them them now to about five, six feet. And my second question is, again, with the rose bushes, I was very negligent when this heat came, and I didn't water them as much as I could. (laughs) So they may be suffering a bit. Okay, what
5: do you think? You know, first of all, yes, you might as well cut them back halfway now. I'm assuming they're a Floribunda or Grandiflora rose. Those specific um, category of roses do grow very, very large. So, um, yes, come back to six feet. For now, clean them up, get rid of any dead wood, take off any diseased leaves, clean them up a lot. Um, you know what? One thing we need to do more of is mulch. Uh, when you mulch or put a layer of, of whatever the material might be, um bark mulch or soil or peat moss um just increase the level of soil above the root system mm-hmm. by uh to 2 inches or so in in a radius of about 3 feet around the rose bush or any shrub for that matter then they won't go through the stress of of maybe drying out as much in the summer months or even It'll insulate them a little bit extra for the cold temperatures of winter. But get the roses cut down. You won't do the hard, hard pruning of any rose bush um, down to, say, depending on the rose species again, a foot to two foot. Wow. Um, yeah, that happens sort of in the uh, February, late February, early March uh, period.
0: All right, Lucy. I hope that helped. I'm talking to Wim Vanazam. Give us a call if you want to. Get it. If you've got a question for Wim, 604 280 Lines are open, 604-280-9898. We've got Sandy from Burnaby. Your question for Wim.
2: Um, yes, I have some blueberry bushes, and um, some of them did really well, and some of them didn't, but uh, they're getting really, like, leggy. Do you prune blueberry bushes, or do you just let them go? Yeah,
5: no, you sure do. You, you definitely prune them, and I always, one of the most, difficult things to describe when it comes to gardening is pruning. Because um, uh, in my book, I actually have a statement where I say, you can take 10 different experts, pruning experts, to a shrub, and each one of them can prune them. Everyone would be different, but none would be wrong. Hmm. So the the most important thing when it comes to pruning, you want to actually um, get the understanding of what are the basics of that bush, that plant. Uh, what does it need in general and when to prune it? So blueberries, you prune sort of midwinter uh, and you sort of clean out the inner portions. You take out dead branches and, and real thin, scrawny branches. But, but you know, online, uh, often looking up pruning of a blueberry is, you know, or any shrub is sometimes the best start so that you see kind of the concept behind mm. the basic pruning of that plant.
0: Hope that helps, Andy. Appreciate the call. Give us a call if you want to ask a uh, a question about gardening. 604-280-9898. 280 9898 We'll take one more before we take a break. Dave from Vancouver, a question for Wim.
4: Yes. Yes, first of all, thank you for taking my call, gentlemen. Yeah. Great great knowledge that you've got here, Wim. Thank I you. have, a, I guess, a pine tree that's very acidity. And over the years, you know, I've cleaned it all up, and I've got some ferns, and i got some other... You know, we'll call them daffodils and little things. I ripped up all the weeds, dug out everything, put a whole bunch of soil in. And I want to put some perennials in. What is yep. hardy that will grow in acidity soil? But even though there's probably a good foot in a bit of, you know, fresh dirt over the last few years.
5: Well, there's, there's a lot of perennials that will, would, would grow in an acidic soil without any problem whatsoever. Um, but it, sometimes it's in, it's, uh, the, the biggest issue is, is giving them that good start. So you need to be able to dig a big enough hole to put some fresh earth in and around the plant uh, so it can get a good start uh, with its root system, and then it'll be fine. But uh, still being hosta, the first ones that come to mind, that they're very hardy. They would grow under a pine. Uh, they don't mind acidic soil. And, and they, they, they are like tough as nails. So those two, for mm. sure, I'd recommend. They're, they're nice and colorful. They have lots of, uh, lots of flowers through the summer months. So probably two guaranteed successful perennials.
0: George African for uh, Mike Smith. And uh, Wim van Der Zams, my guest, president of Art Knapp. Uh, and we're taking your calls. And before the break, we were speaking to Dave from Vancouver. And he didn't quite hear what you said. He wanted a real clarification on something. Go ahead, Dave, real quick.
4: Yeah. Um, I, I could dig a big enough hole in the acidity soil under the pine tree. You mentioned a couple hardy plants that are going to do well in acidity and flower in the summer. I think you said hostas and some other one.
5: Hostas and astilbe, astilbe, beautiful, very hardy, lush perennial evergreen uh, that has nice, beautiful plumes that uh, grow above the uh, the greenery itself. But and there's different colors too, white and pink and purple. So you can get uh, of colors as well.
0: All right. I hope that helped, Dave. Uh, David and another David. We're taking your call. 604-280-9898. 280 uh, 9898 David from Richmond. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. I'm
2: asking about, I've had a fuchsia and somebody taught me finally how to get rid of it and have more come back. And now it's a very large fuchsia and it's doing wonderful. It's probably on its fourth time that it's flowered again Wow! and I want to know if somebody told me I could put it in my garage and overwinter it and have luck with it. Is that possible?
5: Yeah, it sure is. So come basically October, um, what you want to do is uh, cut off about half of the green growth. Uh, you'll be cutting off flowers too probably. All that's fine. Put it in your garage um, and, and find out if, if there's light that's preferred but it doesn't actually even require light so uh, find a find a nice um out of the way spot And even if you want, you can, you can set it in a box just to hold some humidity in and around the plant. You water it once a month with a cup of water, maybe just to make sure it doesn't go exceptionally bone dry. It doesn't need a lot of water though. And then you will uh, leave it there until March, at which time Uh you'll start to bring it out of the box, maybe find a covered area outside and it'll come right back to uh, the beauty that it was
0: this year. Amazing. All right, David, I hope that helped. I got Tom from Colonia. Your question for WIM.
5: Hi, I'm just wondering about planting uh, grasses, ornamental grasses, in Kelowna. Yeah, you know what? I, I when grasses first became a thing, oh, that's going back oh, 10, 15 years ago. I questioned like growing grass. Well, like, what do you want grasses for? And now I don't think I'd, I'd ever have a yard without some grasses in them. They have beautiful movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are very, very hardy. They're drought-resistant. And some of the varieties offer such beautiful either foliage, variegated or colored foliage, or beautiful plumes that grow on top. Like, everyone probably will uh, recognize the pampas grass. But that is, that is an old-style grass from mm-hmm. many years ago. But it's very there, – there's so many varieties um, – uh, the only thing I could probably recommend you do is go to your local garden center, uh, and, and ask for the, the, uh, where the grass area, cause there's, it's usually a big area in any garden center now, and look at, I mean, give them the, the height requirement and your cold tolerance. So the hardiness level Um, that you'll you'll be able to choose from multiple different varieties. And like I say, in a pot, they're great. In the garden, in shade and sun, there's all different options of grasses now. And they really are a beautiful addition to any yard.
0: I hope that helped Tom from Kelowna. Now we have Bill from Victoria. Your question for Wim van der Zam.
4: Yeah, hi Wim. Uh, I have a four year old fig tree and I noticed the secondary fruits have started. So I've already had a few figs from it about eight or nine. Oh, good. And I was just wondering, these fruits are about walnut size. Should I take them off?
5: <laughs> yeah, you you probably should. So a fig in itself, the fruit itself, uh, you can't pick it and, and and let it ripen on the counter. Once you pick it, it will not ripen any further. Uh, your best is to sort of pick out the real walnuts, the small walnut-sized ones. The bigger ones leave intact. And even if you can throw, like, uh, it's only a four-year-old, so it can't be huge, um, but maybe throw a plastic tarp over it to capture some of that heat so at least the remaining fruit that is on the plant will ripen up because we are starting to get those cooler days and cooler nights and the, and the sun is not as intense. So you want to capture some of that heat to ripen up the rest of your figs.
0: All right, Bill. Like that? Get, oh, go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, Just one more yeah, question on the fig quick. tree. Uh, fertilizer.
5: Mm. Fertilizer, you know what? They, have, they, they grow so much leaf mass. They're, they're, the, the need for nitrogen is probably more than anything so actually if you were to use just a, any lawn fertilizer poke some holes with a crowbar into the into the ground in and around the drip line maybe say six to eight holes poached, po- uh, poked into the ground put a half a cup of lawn fertilizer into each hole and that'll give you the nutrient it'll give it the nutrient it needs for the rest of the year
0: That's right, in thanks. spring thanks bill and last call from bob from vancouver before we take a break go ahead bob
5: well, hi hi, Wynn. Uh, I want to know if I can bring my Bougainvillea into the house for the winter and, it, you know, when I should bring it in and... Uh if I can do that successfully.
0: All right. Yeah,
5: you can, definitely. Um, so, you know, we love the bougainvillea. Uh, we see it in our in the southern climates. Um, and, I mean, they grow so huge and so easily down there. But here they're not hardy enough to be outside year-round. What you want to do is come October, like similar to what I recommended for the fuchsia, is um, put the plant, cut it back, cut it in half, find a very cool but bright room where it's, it will sit dormant. Don't water it very much at all. But find a, a bright, cool room, and, then, and basically you, you kind of cross your fingers with it. It's not an easy one to overwinter, but I think um, if you kind of uh, have a cool, high humidity, bright room, you should be able to store it there until next March with and, and maybe have some success.
0: All right. I hope that helped, Bob. Wim, that's it. We're out of time. I appreciate you joining me today. There were so many questions, and you answered so many of them. I really appreciate it.
5: <laughs> not a problem. Anytime, George. Have a great day.